Randy Humphrey is a sales professional with a long history in the financial services industry. He went to college and failed out immediately. His father told him that he had to start paying rent. He got his first job as a busboy, and then he eventually became a bartender and thought he had it made. Unfortunately, the drinking got to him and he had to turn his life around. Fortunately, he has been 36 years sober since. He met his wife and soon realized the money he was making from bartending wasn't enough. He wanted to be a stockbroker and saw some job ads in the newspaper. He wasn't paid anything at first, but he gained experience and his license. He would wake up at 5 in the morning and finish at 4 p.m. and then go to his bartending job at night. Eventually, he tripled his income as a stockbroker. He made 500 calls a day. He didn't know anything about sales, but he knew he could work harder than anyone else. His story doesn't just stop there. Listen to the episode to learn the rest. Visit nodegree.com to start your journey. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show wouldn't be possible without you. Let's get this show started. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today I have Randy Humphrey. Did I say your name correctly? Yes, you did. Good, good. Can you give a brief introduction of yourself? Uh, so it's Randy Humphrey. I'm 59 years old. I'm married. I've got three kids, uh, six grandkids. So I've got a big family. It's a really important part of my life. Uh, from a from a career perspective, I work on a couple of different projects. I uh, I do sales and help uh, marketing for a company called Zayzoon, which is in the in the financial services space. It's a socially responsible financial services company. Their lead product is Wages on Demand, which helps folks that are struggling paycheck to paycheck, you know, maybe get an advance on that paycheck to help them through a cash crunch. And secondarily, I work with a company called Summit Behavioral Health, and I help folks find uh, residential treatment and solutions when they're struggling with alcohol and uh, mental health issues. Wow, those are two amazing projects. I always love talking to people who are entrepreneurial and who are doing things that are making the world a better place instead of designing the next cool widget. So let's kind of take it back to high school. What did you want to be in high school, Randy? Um, when I was in high school, I wanted to be an accountant. My father was an accountant, and I was going to follow in his foot, footsteps and go be an accountant when I when I grow up, so to speak. Um, I went to college uh, right out of high school. I had, you know, fairly mediocre grades, not great grades, but I went to college and um, basically filled out immediately. I, I took five classes and I got two C's and three F's because I really enjoyed partying much more than I enjoyed going to school. So uh, at, at the tender age of 18 and a half, my father gave me an ultimatum. He said, clearly, you're not going to school and, and, you know, pursuing an education and we're not going to continue to pay for you to party. So you have to make a choice. If you go one more semester, you're going to have to either get good grades or pay us back our entire investment that we've made in college for you. And without even thinking, I said, I don't want to go back to college. I didn't even think about it. I didn't put any thought into it whatsoever, but I just said, I don't want to go to college. And he said, no problem. He goes, we won't, you don't have to go to college. He goes, but in three months you do have to start paying rent because we fulfilled our obligations of parents for you and you're on your own basically, and which was, was, was scary to me at the point. Yeah. At that so point. what did you end up doing next? 
Uh, next, I got a job at Black Angus Restaurant as a busboy, and I, I worked really hard. I I started out on lunches. And I didn't make any money, and then I ended up working nights and eventually became a bartender and started making a decent you know, at, at the time, I thought it was a lot of money. I made a good what living. What was it at the time? Because I know that this was in the eighties, right? It was like it was like twelve hundred dollars a month. Okay, I mean that was decent money in the eighties. Yeah, I thought I made it. I thought I was in great shape and I was really doing doing well. Um, and I did that for a few years, and eventually, uh, the drinking got the best of me. I ended up, you know, getting into some legal trouble. And I got a DUI and I decided to quit drinking. And that was kind of a pivotal moment in my life in terms of where my life started. I can really look at that point as to when my life started. And that was uh, just about 36 years ago. And so 36 years. Yeah, it'll be 36 years in October. So, wow, that's that's I mean, it's not I know it's not easy, right, to go kind of go through that and you know, kind of be in the environment. So were you still a bartender when you quit or you decided, yeah, I still, Hey, I'm still tending bar. And, uh, um, uh, in, in addition to that, I met my wife and my wife had two young kids, two boys, uh, two and four. And, um, we ended up, we got married, uh, about six months later, we've been married ever since. Um, and we raised these kids together and we had a daughter our, our, of our own. So th- we had three kids and it, we've had a life and a journey with those kids raising them. And I've been their primary father. So, um, wow, that's, that's that. No, thank you for that. That's amazing. And I know that you've raised them to be wonderful human beings. Now, how long do you, were you a bartender? Um, like three or four more years. But it, it was, I mean, it was pretty clear that what I thought was great money for a single happening guy was not the same great money for a family man with now three children you know, less than a year's sobriety, three kids and no money and really no idea how I would ever make any money or how I would ever, you know, be able to support the family that I now had to take care of. So would you, what job came next? Um, so, um, I, I went and met a friend of mine. Uh, well, I had a, a small stint with working for my dad in his accounting office in sales and he didn't know how to sell really i didn't know how to sell at all and he wasn't able to help me so i was there for six months and never sold anything um so it was was a very disappointing i'm like i'm really a loser i can't even do that and um i was talking to a friend of mine and he said what would you do if you could do any job in the world that you that you wanted to do what would you do and I said, I would be a stockbroker. Without even thinking about it, I said, I'd be a stockbroker. And he said, well, just go apply. And I said, I can't. They'll never hire me because I don't have a degree. I mean, I was convinced that there was no way. And um, went home later that day, got some want ads, and found a job, found a want ad where they're hiring stockbrokers. Like, just... I thought it's it's a miracle. I must it's meant to be. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, so I ended up applying at three different places. Two of them hired me, and at the time they were like kind of schlocky little crappy firms that you know would hire just about anyone that could bog a mirror to basically come and sell. And it, and they didn't pay me any salary. They didn't. I got nothing other than the experience and I got my license to sell securities. Um, but I worked from 
in the morning, I would go into the brokerage office at five in the morning and I would work till about four in the afternoon. Then I'd go to the bartending job. I would literally change clothes in the car on the way um, to go to my bartending job and I'd bartend till, you know, 11 or 12 at night. And I did that for six, nine, maybe a year. Um, so, I, so I worked really hard and I worked and I worked until I made enough money that I could replace my bartending income. I, I basically tripled my income when I started making money as a stockbroker. So I was kind of off and running at that point. So you weren't making money in the first place. You always kept that bartending job to make sure that you had something to put food Correct. on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had a family. I had to, you know, I had you know, bills to pay and so on. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and I just, I worked really, really hard for quite a while. So now how long did it take you to sort of really replace the bartending salary? Uh, about a year and a half all in, you know, because I had to go to, I had to study for my test and, you know, all the things that I needed to do to become a stockbroker to begin with. And then I, I would go in and just make 500 calls a day. Like I would call people and try to get them to open an account with me. And I, I didn't know anything about sales. I was just dumb lucking it kind of just, I could work harder than anybody else in the office. And I, they had a machine that counted how many dials each person had. And I led the office in dials every single day and worked a full-time job bartending. So eventually I could, uh, I went to part-time bartending for a couple, for maybe six months or a year to that. Yeah. Now, when did you start making sales? Uh, so I started in, uh, I got licensed in November. I think my first sales started in April or May of the next year. So it probably took me six months to, you know, like I was going in and, you know, kind of beating my brains out every single day for months and months without any success. And like one thing that I I have to say is that I, I had married a, an amazing woman who even though there was no data to prove it to be true, she would tell me, you're going to do great. You're going to be amazing. To, you know, just keep trying. You know, she she always believed in me when there was really no reason to believe in me, but she always did. She was always so, What was your first sale? Because I figured you remember it. Uh, it was uh, it was three thousand dollars worth of stock. The guy, it actually, it was a it was a penny stock, which I was working at a penny stock firm, and the the actual the stock was twenty thousand shares of a fifteen cent stock, and that stock actually ended up going to one hundred twenty five. So the, the guy, I'm sure he didn't keep it, but if he would have kept it, he would have made mountains of money. He would have made so much money. It was, it was just unbelievable. Like, And what was, what's the commission on the sale like that? It was like, uh, I think I made three or $400. Okay. Okay. So you must've been like, whoa, this oh, is. Oh, I, I thought I was rich. Like I was like, I've got more money than I'll ever need. Yeah. That's, that's cool. So. What what changed it when you started making these sales? Like, what did you get better at? Um, I one of the things that happened was I I would work harder. Like I said, I worked harder than anybody in the office. And there was a a broker that was there that had been around for a long time. He goes, 
I can't watch you blow your brains out anymore. I just can't watch. It's too painful. He goes, why don't you record some of your calls and we can listen to them together and I can figure out where you might be going wrong. And what I was doing wrong was I was, I was never really asking for the business. I was never directly saying that, like, I thought that you would say, do you want to buy this stock? And they say, yes or no. Like I, it's not really like that. Sales are really not like that. There's a lot more nuance to it. And so when I started figuring that out, it changed. So now you got your first sale. So that was in April, you got your first sale, right? Now, how are the next few months? Because obviously now you got things working. Now you, you have some feedback. How, how, how much did that grow? I got the first one. And then there was another little lack where I went like a couple more months where I didn't do much. But then I just sort of started to believe in myself and it just started to happen. And the next thing you know, I had 20 accounts and then 50 accounts. And then I mean, it, it happened pretty quickly after that. Yeah. And then, so when did you stop bartending? But but it wasn't, it wasn't easy though. Easy. easy, No, it doesn't sound easy at all. So um, I quit bartending and maybe, August or September or something like that, a few months after my first sale. And I mean, like I said, it was a penny stock firm. It was a schlocky firm. They were not well, they didn't have a good reputation. And as I got more depth to knowledge and understood what I was doing a little bit better, I realized that they weren't a good firm and they weren't good for my clients and it was going to, you know, end badly. And so I left that firm and went to another firm and had to kind of start over again. So, okay. was, so now how was it starting over? It was a big blow to my ego because I thought I know what I'm doing and this is going to be really easy. And I thought my clients would just go with me wherever I went because I was such a great guy. And I realized that's not the case. Like I, I was literally starting over and it was competitive with those clients. And so I had to rebuild my book, which was really difficult. And it was difficult because I thought, you know, it took me a little bit of time to understand that just because they did business with me there doesn't mean they're going to do business with me at another place. And so there was a little bit of ego involved and that took some time to, to understand. One of the things that happened to me along the way was, um, which is a great story, but if you're a stockbroker, so because it was a struggle to get going again, I took a second job delivering pizzas at night. Yeah. You know, once again, I have a family and I don't get the luxury of just not making enough money and not eat, you know, eating peanut butter or whatever. I have, you know, mouths to feed, so to speak. So I had a job delivering pizzas at night and I got a, I was delivering a pizza and the guy came to the door and it was actually one of my clients. When you're a stockbroker or financial services guy and clients are depending upon you for your financial wherewithal and you have to deliver a pizza to them it's not the best look (laughs) yeah so um, how what was the client's reaction uh actually they sort of laughed about it he was actually he was very cool about it he didn't he didn't you know make a big deal he would kind of tease me about it when i'd see him like he never really felt like he he thought it was cool that i was hustling he was more impressed by the hustle than bothered by the 
you know, my stockbroker also delivers pizzas, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but no, I mean, was, that's good. That's a more, look, you got to do what you got to do. And at the end of the day, you, you stuck by your family and that's why they are where they are today. Now, what, how long did you keep this job? Um, so I, I, there was kind of, I went to a couple different firms. I was at Smith Barney for five years. I was at Prudential for a few years. And then I, um, about 10 years in, I worked really hard for 10 years and didn't really make a lot of money. And then I had a couple of deals work. Like I had a couple of things that I'd worked on and I had a stock go from 10 to 60 in one year. So my clients made six times their money in a year. And that's a pretty, and then I, um, my next deal, my clients made seven times their money. It took about two years, but, um, I had a couple of really big wins and, and the, the, your business grows fast when that happens. And so you don't have to work as hard and then you become like kind of, you have a reputation. So you get just a ton of business because people tell other people about you and you just, answer the phone and get a lot of business. So it kind of shifted about 10 years in, but it was 10 years of really hard work to get oh, there. 10 years of just doing. So you, you mentioned how you, you did the bartending pizza delivery. Did you do any other jobs on the side? Like when things were necessarily not as good? So I think a cold, a couple of cold calling jobs and stuff like that, but nothing, I don't remember that much substantial that I did other than those. Those were, yeah. So now, did, when did you, did you, you, you stayed at, how long did you stay in that industry in general, like the stock? I was, in, I was a broker for about 20 years. And the last nice. 10 years, I made a lot of money. I was really comfortable. And um, the business, I, I became an office manager. Um, I partnered with a guy that owned a discount trading firm, and he wanted to build a retail branch out. And um, so I was his first broker and I built the brand. I built it out for him. We had 60 brokers when I left. They're wow. the largest independent um, brokerage in Arizona. They manage a few billion dollars now. Wow. They're a really pretty big place. But that was about the last five or six years of my career. Nice. Now, why did you sort of leave the stock broker industry? Um. I I got burned out on it. The market started to really change what a stockbroker does today versus what I was doing when it was fun and enjoyable and I liked it is completely different. Like today, it's more money management. So you're not really making financial decisions other than do I put the money with this money manager or that money manager? There's less really individualized decisions that are made that really can impact the client. And I also... You know, I was about 40 years old. I was somewhat disillusioned with the market and like really not feeling a great sense of purpose to what I was doing on a daily basis. So I got to the point where I thought if I really do a great job, if I do my job perfectly, the result will be that a rich guy just got richer. And that kind of wasn't enough anymore. It wasn't enough to, you know, work hard and do all the things that I needed to do to make the business work. It just wasn't satisfying anymore. So what was the next move? So I started to look around and started to kind of put feelers out. And a friend of mine owned, like, had, had put together a deal for a company that was doing payday loans. And I didn't really even know what a payday loan was. 
But I knew that um, it was like to me at the time, I did very little due diligence. I, it sounded good. They were going to pay me quite a bit of money to, to make the switch. And um, it, was, it was a loan, so it was financial services. And I was just burned out enough that I'm like, that sounds great. I'm going to go do that. I really didn't even know what it was. But I just thought I can figure it out. I'm smart. Yeah. So when you got into payday loans, like, what were your thoughts? Because it's one of those things you're like, wow, people like this industry exists and it's a big industry. But, you know, there are people who have, you know, who are sort of sheltered from it who really have no idea because it's always a certain, you know, demographic in terms of income. Right. And people who and a lot of people don't like sharing. Right. They don't. It's sort of, you know, you feel embarrassed. Right. So I, I, I was there about three weeks and I'm like, this is the dumbest model I've ever seen because the way that the payday loan industry works is that the good borrowers, the borrowers to actually pay the money back, basically pay for the losses of the people that don't pay the money back. So the good borrowers are being punished to pay for the bad borrowers and nationwide across the board the default rate is about 16%. So if you lend $100 out, you only get 84 back. And in order to make that model work, you have to charge an enormous amount of interest to be able to make the model work. And so the, the folks that are in the payday loan industry live by, they say to the regulators, we have to charge this much because our default rate is so high. But in, a, in, in reality, they're doing nothing to lower their default rate. They're doing nothing to make it a better transaction. They just charge a boatload of interest. And it, it was really uh, pity loans where it was an industry that grew out of pawn shops. And so the, the folks that are in that industry are not the most ethical businessmen. They don't care about their customers in really any real way. And so it was a it was an industry that was allowed to survive and so even though the the product is horrific they were doing a hundred million payday loans per year every year in the united states so it's a terrible product so clearly the need is there clearly there's folks that need that help 75 percent of the country lives paycheck to paycheck but the only solution was a terrible solution and so i um, the other thing that's kind of relevant is my father owns a payroll company. My father and sister manage a local payroll company. And I thought if you could take that loan, the, a payday loan essentially works like this. You need 300 bucks. You don't get paid till a week from Friday. You go into a payday loan store today. You write them a check for $360. They say, do you have a paycheck? Yes. And you show them a paycheck. And they give you 300 bucks in cash for a $360 check that they're going to take to the bank two weeks from now, basically. That's how the transaction works. So they just charge you 20% to really get your own money early. That's really what they've done. So if you think about there's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of guys like open a checking account, go write 20 payday loans, and then close the account. So they, they get burned a lot. But – there are a lot of good folks that are really just their car broke down. They need 200 bucks today to fix it or they can't get to work. So there's folks that really need that, that help, but you're punishing them by all the fraudulent loans that are out there as well. So um, I thought if you could 
if you could somehow find out, A, how much money they actually had coming from their employer somehow, and if you could, um, instead of having them take their check to the bank, if I could somehow get the money out of their check before it goes to the bank, that my risk would drop dramatically and I could bring the fees down to make it a better transaction for the customer. Like that was sort of my theory. So I called my dad and said, do you think employers would allow you to do this? And I could do it through the payroll and that way I could get reimbursed directly and, I, and my default rate will go down. He's like, yeah, I think, I think it would work. And um, so we kind of put everything to my next thing was there's got to be a hundred guys doing this on the internet and we just have to be good marketers. So let me see how they're marketing it. You know, I just kind of went to the internet and searched. Nobody was doing it. Nobody, not one person, like nobody had ever thought of it or didn't know how to figure it out or whatever. They just weren't able to do it. And so we started to put a business plan together. We went to the regulators to find out if it was even legal. You know, you sort of a lot of different laws are coming to play. I'd been in regulated businesses before, so I was comfortable with that. So we went to the regulators. We kind of figured all that out. We figured out how we could mechanically do it with the payroll company. We used my father's company as a sort of a beta test to do it. He had a sales guy. We had been, um, we'd had a few meetings about it at my dad's office. And one of the sales guys was in one of the meetings. And he went to this, he was trying to sell this manufacturing company. They had 200 employees. And he casually mentioned it. And the guy said, wait a minute, you could do the advances for me. I don't have to do them. And he said, sure. And he goes, you're going to risk your own money. And he said, these guys are. So uh, they signed up like immediately, like they want, they signed up for the payroll because we had that service. It was 200 employees and we did, um, we got up to about 30% of their employees were using the service on a pretty regular basis. So it's about 60 employees out of 200. We ended up doing a full beta test of around uh, a thousand advances and at that point, um, our default rate was less than 1%. Wow. So that's like so much better. Yeah. So we could bring the fees down pretty dramatically because, you know, which is a better product for the consumer. So we did that, um, made those changes. Our first investor in the deal was Rena Center, which is a $3 billion company. Um, they were sort of dabbling in, in payday loans from the rental business. So they made an investment in us. Um, but we were we were very early. We we're we we're almost you know too early because the market wasn't quite ready for it. Like it was real hard to get employers to understand that this is a valuable service. I get a lot of employers that would say, none of my employees would ever do a payday loan. And I'm like, well, statistically speaking, they do, <laughs> and they, they just didn't believe me. You know, we were early on. We were sort of undercapitalized. We got to the point where. We had enough customers that if all of them started doing loans, we'd be out of business. We wouldn't have enough money to be able to service the business we had. And so we sold out to a strategic investor. And that was in 2012, 11, something, something like in 12, 10, 11 or 12, something like that. So almost 10 years ago. And so, you know, it was like a successful transaction. We believe the strategic investor was going to take the ball and really run with it and really make it a real business. 
and they within a year mothballed it and shut it down because they really were wanting us out of the market more than anything else they just wanted us out of the market why why did they want you out of the market because they wanted to continue to charge really high fees they didn't want they wanted ah. to figure out how to bring the default rate down but they wanted to continue to charge really high fees Mm. So on their core business, that's where they made all their money and they didn't want to see that change. So they were more committed to, you know, their core business staying the way that it is than they were, you know, changing the market or being good guys or anything like that. You know, it's sad because I see that happen a lot. A lot of times progress is held back by people who temporarily lose. Right. And they don't necessarily care about, you know, the furthering the you know what what's best yeah, for most people they're entrenched they just... in their own you know you know their own self-interest and they're not able to kind of see the bigger picture like i thought if they could have really refined the product they could have owned the market they could have been the, yeah. the only guys in the market and literally over the last 24 months there's probably been in the united states 250 million dollars raised for this idea because it's something that's now really catching on and there's yeah, a lot yeah. of fairly big players in the market. So it's something that was inevitable to happen. They could have been on the forefront of it, but they were pretty entrenched in what they were doing that day and weren't really interested in the futures. Oh, that's very sad to hear. What came next after that? So um, two things happened at that point in time. One is um, there was a guy um, who was up in Canada, and he um, – had found me on LinkedIn somehow, reached out to me and said, I'd really like to hear about what you guys are doing. It's really interesting to me. Would you be open to having a call? And so I, I talked to him for like a half hour at the time he was in college and I thought he was really doing some sort of a project for school. And that, I mean, that was kind of it. That's all there was to it. Um, but in, in the meantime, I, um, sold the company. I was 50 years old and it was another sort of renaissance period. And I sort of looked to my, my recovery and my sobriety. At that point, I had 25 years of sobriety. I'd been sober for a while. And it was really important to me and I wanted to do something a little bit more impactful. I had a friend that owned a hotel in California that was really struggling financially. He could not make it work as a hotel, because, mainly because of the location. It was a beautiful property, but it was kind of in a crappy neighborhood. In a, and he was down a couple million bucks in the hotel. And so I said, why don't we convert that hotel to a treatment center and we can get you whole in the investment? So that was kind of our goal. So we we had to change the... the we had to change the... Uh, zoning, get licensed as a treatment center. We had to do a bunch of stuff. That took about a year. So we got everything done and we opened as a treatment center in 2014. So um, I, st I was a managing partner on the project. I built out the whole thing. Uh, we had a clientele. We built some really good strategic relationships with, you know, some, you know, pretty big employer groups and so on. And um, over the next five or six years, we, worked on building the census and building that program. And we ended up selling that in 2019. He got all of his money out of the real estate that he was down on. So he made his money back. We didn't really make a lot in the deal because, you know, it's, it, we, we started it at a difficult time. Reimbursement rates and treatment 
went from about 70% to about 30% over the five years when we had the place. So every year we generate more insurance building, billing, and we'd make the same, about the same amount of revenue. So it was a difficult time to be in the business. And, um, you know, honestly, we weren't great operators. So um, we, we, were, we were mediocre operators. We were pretty good marketers, but we, we needed to really be better marketers to make it, you know, really work well. So it wasn't a great project other than the fact that I got exposure to a lot of, you know, it was exciting for me to really help a lot of people. We helped a lot of people get sober, and that's amazing. It wasn't a huge financial success, but it, it gave me a really good book of business that I still work with today. So that was a great win for me. And my partner got out of the deal alive, which was amazing. So it was, you know, it was a mediocre success. And the hey, interim... It's a success. Yeah. So in the interim, that kid that called me from the university continued to call me every six months or a year. And he had started a company up in Canada to do um, wages on demand, which was my kind of original idea. And that company was Azoon. And so we had several conversations. He would pick my brain and ask me questions. And it was it was really fun because I got to see something that was a real passion project for me that I thought could really help a lot of people start to come alive and start to really be a real business. And so at some point, I think it was in 2017, he asked me and one of my partners if we would help them get into the U.S. market. So because I had pretty deep relationships in payroll and payroll companies and platforms and know the space really, really well, um, we, um, we started helping them and working with them to build out the U.S. market. We have Today, we have, I think, 150 partners um, all over the United States, uh, big and small. We have just a lot of traction with a lot of different partners in the U.S. market for that product that's really starting to come of age and really start to be an amazing, you know, kind of uh, help for people. But the thing about Zayzun is they've taken it a little bit farther and um, they're doing, uh, you know, financial education. They have some other products that are coming along. To really, if you just think about how can we help people with their finances and help them become more affluent using their, you know, just educational tools or good products that are consumer friendly and, you know, really think about the consumer first. If you think about how Apple markets its product differently than, say, computers were. 30 years ago, they really make them easy to use and comfortable for the customer. They think about that and how can we make these products that are really good for the consumer versus how can we, you know, versus thinking about how much can we make off of them. The, there's a whole different social market that's that's done with Zayzoon. And so they look at the world a little, a little bit differently, but it's a project that I'm really passionate about being involved with. You know, you've obviously had an illustrious career and you're still going and you have a crazy work ethic. Now, what would you say, what got you ahead? You know, if you had a few things that really set you apart, what got you ahead? I, I talk about how my father owns an accounting business. And my father, and because my father owns an accounting business, he does work with small businesses. And he opened a small business. I remember going to my dad's office when I was in high school. And I would answer the phones in the afternoon. That was like I kind of my, I earned my keep by doing that. And I'd go answer phones from, and nobody would ever call. And so 
spin forward to today, if you stand in his reception area, the phone never stops ringing. And he's got 40 employees. So I saw that small business belief and and I saw it work. So I knew that it worked. And I grew up with this attitude that that anything that you want to do, you can do. You just have to decide that you want to do it. And then I married a woman that encouraged me and believed in with me, even when there was no evidence to do so. And I just worked really hard. So I, I could always outwork anybody <laughs> around me. And I always just believed I can do whatever I want to do. Like whatever it is I want to do, I can go do it. Uh, that's that's an amazing belief. And, you know, a lot of more people should sort of adapt that attitude. Now, what were some of the mistakes you've made along the way? I would say probably my biggest mistake is uh, taking on partners in deals when I, when I could have done them myself. And, you know, you end up just, you know, giving away a lot of the business that you don't need to do um, because you want other people around you and people involved in deals and you want that camaraderie and everything, but you don't really need it. You, you give up a lot by doing that. So I would say that probably the thing I regret most is, is, um, not having ironclad deals with partners when I get involved with them. The the guy that I helped build the build the um, financial services brokerage firm with has made millions of dollars off the work that I did that I have never really capitalized on. And uh, you know, it's, but I, I'm not angry about it. It's just I I needed to learn that lesson. Like, be greedy with with the equity and greedy about your your efforts with your partners, because if you work really, really hard, you deserve to get a, a bigger share of the, of what you do. So, No, I think that's, that's very good advice, right? Setting the expectations and setting the agreements and, you know, have those tough conversations because, you know, when money gets involved, people tend to, you know, it, you'd love it if people are like, Hey, you know, you've made me a couple million. Here's, I'll cut you a check. But most people tend to not be that way. They just like, Hey, I can buy another boat. I can buy another house. I can do X, Y, Z. And none of them typically involve you. So now what would you say, like, how has the industry changed over time? Like, what do you think has allowed, and especially the payday loan, do you think it's like the technology, the more acceptance? Is it because there's more investment in companies in general? What would you, how has um, the industry that, changed over I time? I think the wages on demand, the big change is the acceptance in the marketplace and the the slow permeation of, of employers and owners and uh, stakeholders to understand that they're, they're the folks that work for them are struggling. I, I, it's shocking to me, but in payday loans, the average user makes between forty and sixty thousand dollars a year. So it's not folks. Everybody think it's the guy who's making ten bucks an hour, but this is anecdotal. But my belief is that if you make ten, twelve bucks an hour, you don't make enough money to get yourself in financial trouble. You just you can't buy a car and a house. And, you know, you know, what I mean, like if you make a little bit more money, you can get yourself in more trouble and get yourself overextended. So, no, I mean, that makes sense. Right. Like you just at that point, you don't go live out on your own. You stay with someone. You really can't really do much. But when you do start to make the 4060, that's when you move out. You take on more obligations. And then, you know, we're always one bad instance right because i know like, car repairs are not cheap right depending on there are some repairs that are four to six hundred bucks and you know that's a lot even if you are making the 60 to eighty thousand dollars a year especially if you haven't budget for it and you when you have a family what would you say 
was the hardest period of your life? Um, I would say that 10 years when I, you know, like I wasn't a bartender, I was trying to be a stockbroker. I wasn't making any money. Uh, it was a long time of really working really, really hard and kind of not going anywhere. And I felt like I was going nowhere. And, you know, I was really defeated by the end of that 10 year period. The last, um, year, um, of that kind of period of time between, um, January and July, I made $18,000. So in seven months I made 18,000 bucks between August and December, I made 56,000 bucks. So there was a significant change in my financial situation, you know, in that time frame. It was a long time coming. It took me a long time. And I think that you just got to keep believing. And it's hard to do that. Like, to, so how do you handle such a big shift in income? Because it's just so easy, right? Did you, you know, it's, it's an easy way to get in a lot of trouble. How do you sort of handle that, you know, with all your obligations? We just kind of moved too fast to change things. So we, we'd spend enough time not making any money that we were afraid of doing something stupid. So we were, we're real careful before we made moves. So, and, you know, back to the kids, I was able to, you know, give them a good life, you know, like it came in time for them to really enjoy some things. I'll never forget one of the first things I did do. I, and this, I don't remember ever really buying myself anything. I don't remember that. I, I, I'm sure I did, but um, um, the kids, we would always take them to the, to the um, like TJ Maxx or Marshalls or whatever to get them shoes. And we live in Scottsdale and it's a nice area. We lived here because the schools are good. And we wanted them around, you know, you know, good places to be and safe and all that stuff. But, you know, all the other kids are wearing Air Jordans and all the cool new shoes. At the time, like a really cool pair of sneakers got 80 bucks. And this is like in the 90s. And oh, day, that's a lot. You know, like back then it was like, that's a lot of money. And we were buying yeah, yeah. 25 at TJ Maxx that were two years old or whatever. Um, but I, I we finally had, you know, we took them to the store and told them they could buy any kind, any shoe they wanted. And they didn't buy the most expensive. They bought the middle of the road. They were nicer than they had been wearing, but they didn't buy the most expensive. I was, I was really impressed with my kids when we did that. Like, no, I mean, it, it shows that you taught them well because, you know, I've seen some people who are still not happy with the most expensive of the line. And, you know, it's something that I, I, I see a lot. Right. And it really comes down to how the parents raise them. So you definitely did it well because it's, you know, as, as a kid, yeah, you do want all that, but you know, you kind of, un, you know, it shows how grounded they were. Uh, I do want to touch a bit on the no degree thing, if you, yeah, if, sure. that's, if that's okay. Um, and this comes, you know, a little bit from my economics and understanding the markets, and because I'm a yeah. stockbroker, I have sort of that, that some depth of knowledge about the business. But I think that one thing that's happened over the last thirty years is that there's a lot of universities, online universities, Phoenix, University of Phoenix, and, you know, a lot of yeah. those, um, New Hampshire University, and all those sort of online programs that have really commoditized education. Yes, and they have. And because of that, education has less and less value. And so the difference that we can make in the market is to show folks that we can work harder, that we can, you know, really do the job and hustle a little bit more. And I think that employers are starting to understand the value of that. And depending on the 
obviously depending on on occupation you don't want to hire a doctor that he's a real hustler but he's never been to med school yeah yeah <laughs> but i think that um the value of education is diminishing because of those programs are in the market. They figure out how to get money from the government for student loans. And I think that you can be a lot more agile with your career if you don't get the degree. I hate to say it that way, but you don't get the degree and you, you learn a skill or a trade or a business inside and out. And you're going to make a lot more money in the long run and you're not going to do it saddled with student loans. Yeah. And the other thing is, unfortunately, like some of these institutions, they don't even hire teachers who went to those schools. So it really shows like if you don't even accept the graduates of your school, it really shows the quality of your education. And a lot of these are just extensions of high school. Right. They just kind of they do the minimum amount of work to get accreditation and that's it. And I've seen a lot of people a lot and you'll see a lot of executive assistants, secretaries, they sort of get it just because the, com the company says you must have a degree, doesn't matter what, and they'll just kind of get it. And it sort of defeats the purpose, right? If a company requires a degree, it should be a reason. Like I see some postings online can have any degree. And it's like, there's a totally difference between a computer science degree and an engineering degree and a humanities degree and a communications degree and different institutions matter differently like you know some institutions you get a degree it's it's not the same so it, it's kind of sad and then you know the other thing is sometimes just requiring the degree without looking at the individual right i'm pretty sure that there were some jobs that you could have done but they're like hey randy you don't have a degree sorry hr says no but it's it sucks because they don't look at the person who worked for no money and bartended and who has a ridiculous work ethic so Let's kind of, this goes to my next question. Was there a ever a time the lack of a college degree sort of kept you back from some opportunities that you were perfectly qualified for? Um, I would say more in my own mind, yes, but in reality, no. So I would say that I've never really not gotten a job or not been able to do something because of, because of my lack of a degree. But there was a long time I really believed that it would. And so when I... I'll never forget. I was a stockbroker for many years. I had a client that was a chief financial officer of a big company that did $800 million in revenues. And uh, and they, they had a bunch of inter international operations. And I could read their balance sheets. I could read their income statements and cash flows. And I could ask them really quality questions about their business. And I was always, we would get in these philosophical conversations, my client and I, about finance and how it works and, you know, all the international stuff that they did. And he, I knew, I was afraid to tell him I didn't have a degree because I thought that he wouldn't think I was smart. And I finally told him I didn't have a degree and he was shocked. He said, I would never have guessed it because you obviously know what you need to know. Without it, but I would always tell them that I went to school and uh, Northern Arizona University. That's where I went to school, which is true. But I would never tell him I graduated. I, I would never, I would never lie to him. But I would just never would tell him the whole story until you know I knew him like five or ten years, and I finally told him. And then after he was that, did he treat you any differently? Or no, he, just he, was like he laughed about it. He thought it was funny that I hadn't told him. He wasn't bothered at all by it, but it's it's like I said, it was my own insecurity more than it was other people laying that on me. Yeah, no, I mean, that's good to know that, you know, there are people who sort of see 
you for who you are and what you bring to the table. Now, for someone like you, right, what do you feel was lacking from the education? Because you mentioned that you went to college and you, you did bad. What do you feel like was lacking from that? I, I think that um, the me doing bad was more my motivation than it was the college wasn't offering. I mean, there's times when I wish that I would have gotten my college education, not because I need it for a career or I need it for business, but more so that I missed the opportunity to learn a lot about a lot of different things that I didn't learn. Right. I, that, I would say that that would be the, the biggest you know, regret that I have. But, but, you know, from a pure business or career, you know, financial perspective, I think that if you're going to start today and you're, you know, 20 years old and you're just deciding, do I go to college or do, if you went to work in any business that you would want to be in and put that same four years in and just worked hard, you're probably going to end up farther than you would if you would, you know, put that investment into college. No, hundred percent. And it's all about being strategic, right? In some cases it makes sense. You all got to, you, you know, everybody has to figure out what's right for them. So what are your future goals, right? Cause you've had this career, you've, you know, did the, one of the first ones to introduce a new career and you're kind of back into it. What are your future goals? Like, you know, you're really like you have a good legacy. What, but what I what I do now, like I love the businesses I'm involved in. I love the work that I get to do on a regular basis. The thing that probably the most exciting to be on my horizon that I've been doing lately is I've started doing uh, interventions for drug and alcohol treatment. So I have Folks that are, you know, like really need to go to treatment, really need to make changes in their lives, but they're just not ready to do it. And so I've been brought in by families to help them make those decisions to, you know, kind of get them to change the way that they're thinking about or change the system and the family to help make that decision more palatable. Um, so doing intervention something that's really exciting to me that I love doing. Uh, I've done probably 20 of them now and I, it's the the most I, I say it's fun most of the families don't think it's so much fun but I, I I really and I really think that you can change folks lives that way and you can save lives by doing that so that's probably the next frontier for me is to get a better you know do a better job of doing that for families uh that's that's amazing and I think like I have a friend who who again he had those phases of his life where he there's an article where he escaped prison in Australia and you could see and he was a different person and now he helps with that and it's so rewarding because it's 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 tough right and there are stigmas attached to people who've gone through that but you know the more we allow for people for a chance of recovery to live a life because they are humans at the end of the day and you know getting help Thank you for doing that. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really want to like share with the world? I think uh, uh, the best investment that you can make is in your family. And that's where the real rewards are going to be paid off. So I, I got to go to my grandson's football game yesterday, my granddaughter's soccer game last week. And I, I, I would say that being a grandparent is the most rewarding thing that's ever happened to me. That's probably... My one pinnacle of success is my kids, my grandkids. And um, I think it's cool that I'm 60 years old and I've sort of checked all the boxes. I've really lived an amazing life. And I think it's just you've got to believe in yourself because you, you just you can do anything that you want to. Anybody can do anything that they want to if they believe in themselves. So it's just, you know, work hard and believe in yourself. 
Yeah. No, what a wonderful message. And, you know, you are the reason that they are having being able to go to those football games because the values instill in the kids and kind of paving the road and, you know, doing what you can because there are plenty of people who don't necessarily do what you do who work those all two three, jobs. And all I know three how of my kids um, have their own businesses. All three of my kids are entrepreneurs. Um, all three of my kids, one of my sons has multiple businesses that he runs. Um, you know, they're just, my, they're constantly saying that we're cut from the same cloth. I mean, but like a lot of environment, I just sort of shot, you know, and told them they should do whatever they want to do that they're going to be excited about. But they're both, they're all three pursuing things that are exciting to them. My daughter's actually going back to school now. She's got a master's already in public edu- in public health. She's going back to get a master's in education so she can be a teacher, which, you know, that's that's a kind of degree that you probably do need. Um, um, but and I'm really proud of her because that's something that she's really excited about. So, no, I'm happy for her, too. And, you know, the be- teachers like that make a world of difference. And I know I've had teachers who, you know, I still remember fondly to this day. So how would someone support you? Um, how would someone follow you? Oh, <laughs> I don't really. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't have the same uh, social uh, media uh, presence that you might. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but but I think that if there's any family that's struggling and needs some help, uh, my phone number is four eight zero five three two one eight five eight, and I'm happy to help anybody that needs some help with that. And if they want any more information or questions about Zazen, I'm happy to answer those as well. Yeah, so LinkedIn would be the best. You know, LinkedIn is the way that we'll have those in the show notes. Randy, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was such a cool episode. I I knew it was going to be a great episode from the intro call, but it's really great to sort of learn about your life and to learn about what a great person you are and show that, hey, you can be a great person, you can work hard, and you can make the world a better place while leaving a great legacy. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you. I will hope you have an amazing week. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com. Yeah. yeah talk to so, me. you got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem? We can solve we them. We got this. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving, growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps.
keeps us evolving We're growing in a knowing The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going No degree, no problem Any problem, we can solve them LinkedIn Somnia keeps us evolving We're growing in the knowing The wisdom is flowing If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going Yeah